Hello, uh, good afternoon everyone and welcome to the Sunday Afternoon Philosophy Cafe here at the Trist at Hillhead Baptist Church. Uh, my name's Brian, I'm a member of Hillhead Baptist Church and uh, on behalf of the whole church we welcome you here today. I know that many of you have been to uh, previous Philosophy Cafes in previous years and if you're returning, a special welcome. If you're here for the first time, a special welcome to, to you as well. Uh, Phil Hanlon, who many of you will know from his uh, frequent appearance in the public prints or on Newsnight Scotland, um, was educated in the west of Scotland and graduated in medicine from the University of Glasgow in 1978. Um, he had some clinical experience uh, with adult medicine and general practice um, and a research post with the Medical Research Council in the Gambia in West Africa. And returning to the UK, he completed a period of training in public health, after which he was appointed to the post of Director of Health Promotion in the Greater Glasgow Health Board. In 1994, he became a Senior Lecturer in Public Health at the University of Glasgow and became Professor in 1999. Between January 2001 and early 2003, Phil was seconded to establish the Public Health Institute of Scotland before returning to full-time academic life as professor at the university. Phil is the principal investigator for the Culture and Wellbeing Study funded by the National Programme for Improving Mental Health and Wellbeing in Scotland and is part of the Scottish Government's Mental Health, uh, sorry, which is part of the Scottish Government's Mental Health Division. Phil's the honorary consultant in public health with NHS Greater Glasgow and is a member of the government's, Scottish Government's Ministerial Working Parties on Tobacco Control, uh, with recent inputs on healthy ageing and food and drink. As part of the Culture and Wellbeing Study, Phil has recently launched a new website which asks the question, what next for the health of society? He's called it After Now, which is the title of our topic today. Please give a warm West End Festival welcome to Phil Hanlon. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here and to see so many of you. I always think these days all this kind of biographical stuff is on websites and people print it off and read it out and I always think when they do so it's A, embarrassing and B, my mum would be so proud, you know. <laughs> she'd send her a copy, that would be nice. So anyway, um, what I'd like to do is to explore those ideas that are in the Afternow website. Now if you want to find the website, the simplest thing to do is to put... That is a single word after now, A-F-T-R-N-O-W, into Google, and you'll find all the material there. And the basic, yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what the basic argument is, then I'm going to tell you why it is I found my way to that, um, and some of the detail of that, and that should do us for an introduction, and then I'll be really interested in what you think about it, and that's when we'll have a chance after a short break, to have some interaction on it. If I say something that you really want to just jump in on while I'm speaking, then I'm really happy with that. Don't, uh, don't feel inhibited about that. So the basic argument is this, that we are currently living in a change of age. Now, you often hear people say, you know, it's an age of change, and it's certainly that. But the idea of a change of age is a more profound idea. So in the same way... As the world changed from, say, the Middle Ages when we had a feudal agricultural economy to the modern industrial or late industrial economy, that's a change in age. It's so profound that it changed the way we were inside ourselves. Our inner lives changed. So answers to questions like, what's a human being? Why are we here? What's the nature of the universe? 
these things changed. As did the way we live, the way we produce and look after ourselves and associate with each other the structure and culture of our society, in short. So human beings have lived through those changes. For example, we moved from a hunter-gatherer world to an agricultural world. From an agricultural world to an industrial world. And the fundamental argument is that we are in the process of another change as profound as those previous changes. And these things have implications for every single one of us. Now, that's the big argument. Um, and we'll try and put some supporting evidence for that as we go along. But I'd like to explain how it was I got into it. Because as Brian has read out, I'm basically a medic who got interested in public health, who's worked in Glasgow, trying to help the population of Glasgow cope with its now famous health problems. And it's interesting, if you look at Glasgow's health history, you can sometimes get the impression that nothing is good. And the press quite often say this to me. I mean, they actually say this to me. They say, you know, working in public health in Glasgow, is it not the world's most depressing job, they say? Well, it's not, actually. I mean, because if you think of us being here, if you go back to, say, 1830 in Glasgow, just as Glasgow was having wave after wave of migration from the highlands and uh, Ireland and elsewhere, rural economies, people were leaving for reasons we'll explore in a moment or two, Flooding into the industrializing Glasgow, life expectancy was 34. 34. It's now nearly 80. Yeah? So that's progress, isn't it? Yeah? Um, it, it wouldn't be fun being in Glasgow in 1830. Yeah? Rates of alcohol abuse, violence, illegitimacy were much, much higher than they are today. It was tough. People worked 10, 12, 14 hours a day in these newly emerging factories. So how did people cope? Well, they coped in a variety of ways. At first, they had no idea what the health problems that were killing them were. Um, they got cholera, for instance. Now, actually, a very clever man called John Snow worked out using early epidemiological maps that the cholera came from the water. They had no idea what germs were. Pasteur hadn't identified them yet. They had this idea that the dirty air that fluttered over cities, uh, they called miasma, was causing all this disease. That was the level of their understanding. So the first stage wasn't scientific. It was quite practical. It was led by the city fathers and by people themselves. So if you think about violence, what happened was that shopkeepers would patrol the area in front of their shop and they'd make sure that fights didn't break out there. Well, that's how, that's how we started to get civic order, very much bottom up. But equally so, the civic fathers, and we've just had the anniversary of it, built Loch Catrine, having recognized that waterborne disease was one of the big things that was causing problems, and they built sewers. And we are today all the remaining beneficiaries of all of that. So the, the early stage was quite practical, bottom up and top down, as much to do with civic engineering and the establishment of order as it was to do with anything that you might call public health sciences. The next phase was the appliance of science. And my best example of this is um, when a very clever man called Jenna worked out that um, milk, uh, milkmaids didn't get smallpox. Now, you and I might make that observation and go, oh, gosh, isn't that interesting, and move on to the next problem of the day. But he worried away at this, and he worked out that what happened was that they were getting a virus quite like 
smallpox, called cowpox, and that was making them immune from the killer disease. He isolated that, turned it into a vaccine, and the age of vaccination was born. And today, smallpox has been eliminated from the globe. And it's kept in two labs. Um, now, isn't that remarkable? One man's ingenuity, the appliance of science, and we eliminate a killer disease from the entire globe. So that was the next phase of what came along. Another phase to think about was once we had done many of the things that science could do, we recognized that not everyone was having equal access to it. So Beveridge, you'll remember, wrote his famous paper during the middle of the Second World War, and he talked about the five giants that needed to be slain, of which illness was one. And the National Health Service emerged out of that consensus at the end of the Second World War that society had to be both better and fairer. And you know that, they, that there were literally thousands of men who were still doing labouring work with hernias. And in the first year of the NHS, they did a record number of hernia repairs to put right an injustice that had been going on for a long time. But it wasn't just, of course, the National Health Service. It was Social Security, old age pensions, social housing, and much else. And that welfare state gave another impetus to health improvement. And in more recent times, the, the success, it's interesting, way back in 1830, what they did was really they helped babies and children to survive. That's what really pushed the life expectancy on. Um, by the time you were dealing with vaccinations and technology and growth was taking off, younger adults were benefiting. It was the working age population, I think, benefited most from the welfare state. And in the more recent time, it's the older population. Because there are more of us who are older. Um, remember Maurice Chevalier, when asked what he thought about growing old, he said it's not bad when you consider the alternative. <laughs> okay. So old age brings many, many health challenges. And by and large, we continue to push life expectancy up by helping people who are already old to live longer. That's largely what the momentum of recent times have been. So, for instance, cancer, which used to have very low survival rates, now has quite long survival rates. And many people can live with cancer almost as a chronic disease and have a quite natural lifespan. Now, that's an extraordinary achievement, isn't it? But a difficult one to, to uh, attain and maintain. So, have you got the picture that I'm painting here? All right? The... Because I'm going to, in a moment, attack this modern period, or at least critique it. And I don't want you to get the impression that I don't think it hasn't done wonderful things. And indeed, my shorthand for this, if I didn't give you that riff that I've just given you, my shorthand for the, for the merit of the modern era is anesthetic dentistry. Yeah? I'm very glad it doesn't hurt when you go to the dentist, aren't you? Um, and it's one of the gifts of modernity. But here I was, working in public health, aware of these remarkable gains, and proud of what we've achieved, say, in smoking reduction, in making cervical cancer now not something of great inequality, and so on and so forth. So there are great successes. But there, were a, there was a package, a lump, a challenge of problems that we just couldn't fix. Now, I'm going to pick one just to illustrate this, but it's one of a suite. And the suite was made up of things like the rising rates of depression, the loss of well-being, 
the rising rates of drug and alcohol addiction, obesity. These problems, despite our successes, we couldn't do anything very much. I'm going to take obesity. Back in 1984, the Scottish government, or as it then, it wasn't then the Scottish government, doesn't matter, it was the, yeah, you know what it was, it's all changed. Anyway, the Scottish office issued targets for areas, and we got our targets. And so we were to reduce heart disease and reduce cancer and reduce respiratory disease and reduce obesity and so on. And we set these targets. Now, by and large, these targets have been met. But the obesity target just kept going in the wrong direction. Now, in 1984, people weren't that bothered about obesity. It shows you how quickly it has changed. But, you know, we were plotting the graphs the way we do, and obesity just kept getting more common. So what did we do? We abandoned the target. <laughs> so we no longer have a target for obesity. But if you, if you dig down and think about obesity, here's the thing. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll pick our, our colleague here. Okay. Um, if we think of your ancestry, you know that television program, who, who do you think you are, where you look back and think of your ancestry. It goes back literally thousands. Probably there would be four or five generations of industrial people. There'd be several hundred generations of agricultural people and several thousand generations of hunter-gatherers. Now, in all that time, obesity has not been a problem on a population basis. Now, don't get me wrong, because people sometimes misunderstand when I talk about this. There have always been people who suffered from obesity. Uh, Henry VIII is famously one of them, captured by Holbein in that famous portrait. But in all ages and all times, there's the odd person who's managed to have enough energy accumulation to put on more weight than they'd like to. But in all these generations of your forebears, obesity has never been a population problem. Now, by, by 2050, if current trends continue, there will be more obese people in Scotland than non-obese people. There's already more obese and overweight people than normal weight people. So something's going on, isn't it? You know? And the idea, you see, that um, we just need to shout louder at people. That suddenly, in 1984, the whole global population lost self-control. Is that plausible? I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? So we need to look for deeper solutions. And here's the other thing that's interesting. Um, if you leave the average Scotsman or woman to their own devices for one year, how much weight will they put on? Would someone like to speculate? The average. Two pounds. Is the correct answer. Yeah. You're either very lucky or very knowledgeable. We'll, we'll say you're very knowledgeable. Yeah, two pounds is not much, is it? One kilogram, 2.2 pounds. And the point about it is this, and you'll appreciate that this is a PowerPoint-free zone, but if the PowerPoint graph were here, okay, then can you think of a graph that looks something like that, a kind of normal distribution but skewed a bit over to the obese side? There would be a few people who are underweight, not many. Yeah? And then there would be still a lot of people who are normal weight, and then there would be a lot of people who are overweight and a fair proportion who are what we call obese. And it's all got very controversial and argued over definitions, but we'll take it on trust for the moment. The point about it is this. 
Every single person in that distribution. Well, that's not true. 5% are not. Okay, 5% of the population, and I picked you because you're obviously one of them, keep the body mass index they had at school into old age. But 5% is not a majority, is it? Okay, so when I say everyone, I mean everyone except for that 5%. Everyone in Scotland is just nudging up a bit. Yeah? So a year later, yeah, they're a couple of pounds heavier. Now that's not too bad, except that in 10 years, that's 22 pounds. Yeah? And in 20 years, it's 44 pounds. Can you see the dynamic of the obesity epidemic now? And so it becomes false to focus just on those who are already, as it were, obese. Yeah? Because if everyone's shifting, you've got to work out what's going on with everyone, not just those who are at this end. Now, the people at this end have got more risk of certain diseases and problems, so they need more help. But the whole population is shifting. So you have to ask yourself the question, if all these forebears manage to keep energy balance, why is it we are so hopeless at it? If all but 5% of us can't manage it. And here's the other thing. Okay, anybody can do the maths. One kilogram, all right, is what you put on. A kilogram of fat is 9,000 calories. All right? Because one gram of fat is 9 calories, kilograms 9,000 calories. Divide 9,000 by 365, and what do you get? And the answer is 30-something. 34, I think it is. That's the energy imbalance that creates the obesity epidemic in Scotland. About a quarter of whatever was on that plate. Yeah? Less than one digestive biscuit a day. So it's interesting, isn't it? What, what, what one deduces from this is that there's a more profound problem going on. And if we dig deeper, we discover that basically, um, since about the 1980s, the pressure to eat just that little bit more and to exercise that little bit less has become almost overwhelming in the whole population. Whether it's because of the nature of transport or to do with the processing of food and the addition of trans fats of high glucose corn syrup and of sugar itself and so on into processed food because the companies make money by processing it. Yeah? They sell you a potato. Yeah? There's not much profit in that. They sell you a packet of crisps. There's more profit in that. If they sell you a really fancy packet of crisps with strange flavouring... There's even more profit in that. And so the addition of process adds to the profitability, but also adds to the obesity risk. We could go on a lot on this, but I think you're beginning to get the picture, aren't you? That there's something about just the way we've organized our society that makes obesity almost inevitable for the vast majority. And what's more, it's, it's going on. I mean, my little picture of this, here we are, you know, there's one kilo Two kilos, three kilos. And everyone's shuffling over. You got the picture? And it's still going on. There's nothing stopping it yet. For all the government's policies, for all the banding operations done in hospitals, for all the roadmaps to an obese-free Scotland, for all the ministerial pronouncements, we're still all shuffling in this direction. Now, in that context, 
you know, if you're working in public health, you've got to say to yourself, we need to do something different here. We need to have a better plan. And it was at that point, and I'll just deal briefly with the other diseases that are, are similar, loss of well-being. You know, the economists say if you have more money and more choice, you're happier. Well, that was true for much of human history until about 1976. And since 1976, Scotland has become wealthier, and people have become either just as happy or more miserable. So just making the nation wealthier isn't going to solve that problem. A relationship with work is interesting. At one end of the spectrum, you've got people who basically frazzle themselves, holding down two, sometimes three jobs just to keep life and soul together. And at the other end, this comes from Madeleine Bunting's book, Willing Slaves. She interviews people who work for Microsoft down in Essex, their European headquarters. It's one of these wonderful big office buildings in Parkland, you know, that kind of thing. And they've actually got a main street down the middle of the office block where people come and have their, ca- their coffees and have meetings and so on. And they don't advertise jobs there because there's a waiting list for every post. And people who get to work for Microsoft have a big impetus to their career. And Madeleine Bunton finishes that, um, that uh, uh, paragraph by saying, and all that they require in, res- in, in, in rec- recompense for this opportunity is your soul. <laughs> now, by what she means, that working for an organization like that is a 24-7 thing. Even when you're not at work, you've still got to be thinking about it, promoting it, doing it, yeah? And these are the things that are eroding our sense of well-being. They're of... Now, let's not go there. There's, there's a lot more we could say about it. But what I'm trying to get at here is there's something about our society which is causing certain problems. And there's a gap between the tricks that work so well for the history of public health and the tricks that we're trying to apply to these new epidemics. Um, Thomas Homer Dixon calls it the ingenuity gap, the gap between problems we face and our capacity to, to meet them. And then I asked myself the question, is there any evidence that we will change our society? Because you could, if I sent you the task, you could devise a society that wouldn't make us lose well-being, that wouldn't make us obese. You could. It's not hard intellectually. But is there any evidence that we're going to go for it? Almost none. We will build bigger airline seats. We'll renormalize human size. We'll readjust to a workplace that alienates and deprives people of well-being and a sense of satisfaction and human connection. Gosh, that's a depressing point to reach, isn't it? And it was. We thought to ourselves, you know, there's little point in just doing these public health campaigns because they're not working. And there's little evidence that people want to make the profound change that would help. So what are we going to do? Now, it was at this point that even more depressing news began to cheer me up. Okay? Uh, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that, and I'm going to spend almost no time on this because I think it's not the topic for this afternoon, and I think this audience will be very aware of it. But in, in the history of this, it was probably four or five years ago we came to this conclusion. And at that time, the world was beginning to focus on the problem of global warming, climate change, and a phenomenon called peak oil, which has to do with 
Um, the fact that it, the danger point is not when we run out of oil, which is probably distant, but when half the oil is used up. And at that point, the second half is just harder, more expensive, more energy intensive to get out of the ground. And so the price of oil will rise, as indeed it now is. At the point we started looking at it, that was still all very speculative. But what these things made us think was, gosh, if we're going to have to decarbonize our economy, if we're going to have to fundamentally change the source of energy that flows through our economy, change is coming whether we want it or not. And if change is coming, there's threat for sure, but there's also opportunity. Could we imagine that as we're forced to change by these ecological pressures, we could create a more, because inequality is another one of these problems that we keep trying to fix that we don't seem to be able to fix. A more even, equitable society. A less obesogenic society. A society where we have less stuff but we have more human association, more love, more mutuality. Is that a possibility? Of course it's a possibility. So, given that time's moving on rapidly, let me try now and turn to the big argument. Why did we change from the medieval world to the modern world? Well, we could spend a great deal of time on this, but I'll give you a shorthand version of it. What I would suggest to you, you see, the story I was told at school was that it was clever Scots blokes that did it. Have you, have you, have you heard this story? Yeah? Yeah? That there, there we were, groveling about in agriculturalism, and along comes James Watt and, you know, invents steam engines, and with the new technology, industrialization became possible. Well, the truth is a little more complicated than just that clever Scotch blokes did it. But let's just go back to the medieval world, the world of, say, John Knox and a school in every parish and all of that kind of stuff, yeah? And think about the inner world and the outer world of the average Scot. First thing to say, let's think about the outer world. First thing to say is that there was very little specialization other than between males and females. Women did certain types of work, men did other types of work. But the type of work was pretty standard and it was to do with subsistence agriculture and child rearing and cooking and just keeping body and soul together. And there were no labor-saving devices and you pretty much spent all day, every day, doing that kind of stuff. And it was hierarchical, it was feudal. And you knew your place and you, your place was allocated at birth. And the inner world was also clear. I mean, if we go back far enough, People literally believed that this earth was flat. That below it was a physical place called hell. That the black sky was a canopy above which literally God sat with his angels. And that our time here on earth was to determine our eternal fate. And that this arena called earth was created by God for that purpose. And the rest of it, the universe, was kind of window dressing to keep that in its place. That geocentric universe idea came from Aristotle and got absorbed into Christianity. So that was the inner world. Now what changed it was, well let, let's be clear, energy source was one of the biggest drivers. Back in the Middle Ages, the biggest or the only source of energy, not the only because the water wheels and so on existed, but the biggest source of energy was wood which was a distributed resource. You could go down to the woods and collect your firewood. If you needed it in bigger scale, you made it into charcoal. 
But by the time that the Industrial Revolution was beginning, wood was running out. Collingwood, who was Nelson's rear admiral, would go about with acorns in his pocket, planting oak trees wherever he went, because he was so concerned at the loss of oak trees to make British men of war for the British Navy. And so you had to dig for coal, and coal became the emerging energy source. But it's not distributed. You can't wander down and get coal. And so it had to be mined in places like Newcastle and then transported. And, of course, the mines would flood. And you had to have men pumping it out or horses pumping it out. And that's why the steam engine became an imperative, first of all, to pump water out of mines and then to help distribute it through railways. But the energy source was the driver. The technology followed. And what's more, that inner world started to change. And Galileo says the earth is not the center of the universe. In fact, the earth circulates around the sun. And there's, that up there is not a canopy. It's what we call space. And Columbus sails the ocean blue in 1492 and discovers that it's not flat, it's round. And that awareness changes. And so the facts on the ground changes the worldview. Fast forward a few centuries, and Darwin, because people thought, well, the earth may not be the center of the universe, but at least man, and it was man in those ways of talking about it, is the center of God's creation. Darwin comes along and says, it's not God's creation, and man is just a node in the web of life like any other organism. And so that medieval worldview of who we are as human beings is eroded, chipped away. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying every last person went along with that change. But the center of gravity of society changed. And if we come right up to date, as that outer world and that inner world changed, as the world became more complex, more networked, more free, because let's be clear, it's better being a woman today, better being gay today, better being a minority today, yeah? So lots of good things developed out of that. But the downside of it was that the isms of modernity emerged. Now, we don't have a great deal of time to go into this, but we can return to them in discussion. The isms are, first of all, materialism. A view that the world is material and nothing but material. Sure, the old ideas were shown to be outdated and wrong, but in their place came a materialistic philosophy. With it came consumerism. In the olden era, you were in the feudal system. Today, you project who you are. Through your clothes, through your vocabulary. I mean, you can go to um, seminars now about projecting yourself as a brand in the workplace. And they're not kidding. You think this has to be a joke, but it's not. The whole consumerist ethos. The hedonic treadmill. You buy this thing and you will be happy. You save up, you borrow, you buy. And all they do is dangle the next one. You buy this thing and you'll be happy. Individualism. Now that brought freedom. But it's brought atomization. A sense of loneliness and isolation. Scientism. Yeah? Remember, we've paid tribute to what science has done. But now there's an ideology which says that if, this, if, the, 
if the solution, if the explanation is not couched in scientific terms, it's not real. And then economism, where money is the only nexus that matters. And many people who feel alienated in work today are so because people don't seem to matter anymore, even in the so-called caring services. Targets are made financial, and at the end of the day, the financial nexus controls all. So these isms are helping to create the circumstances in which well-being is declining, depression is rising, addictive behavior is rising, obesity is becoming endemic. And unless we change the malign dimensions of modernity, I don't see any solution to these problems. And there are many more. I've just couched these in public health terms. So, the bad news is that we have to change. And the good news is that we have to change. Yeah? Change is coming. Quite profound change. As profound as that which changed us from a feudal agricultural society into a modern industrial society. Now, what I'd like us to come back to discuss is whether you find any or all of this is plausible. So let's test some of it if we can. But those of you who are prepared to buy into it and explore it is how do we cope with the fact that we're living in a change of age? What are the opportunities that we can grasp and take hold of and make real? If we have to change, what is the upside of down? Thank you very much.